0: quite high up there, and, uh, and one of the things that I think I and all of my team can agree upon is that the things that matter most up there are often the least photogenic, and that's my only regret in showing a slideshow like this. I, I hope you got a taste of the fun that we got to have up there, um, but, but even more important than a lot of the fun tubing and water skiing and things like that that take place um, are the, the conversations that happen in between those moments and the chapel times where we get to talk about how God intersects with uh, hard times. I had the opportunity in the first week of teen camp this year to, to talk for the whole week to do all of the chapel times. That was the first time I had done something like that. And as I prepared, God laid on my heart the theme of hope for real life. And we got to talk each of the five days about what it looks like for God to give us hope in the midst of hard times. And we talked about some of his provisions, some of the things that he gives us in life, good friends who can support us through hard times, mentors who can see in us more than just the uses that we have in this world, um, his, his opportunity to come, to come before him in prayer and uh, be ministered directly to uh, by him. And, uh, and the last day, the thing that we turned to was the passage that I'd like to talk about today. And that's John 21. If you'd like to open up, we're going to cover the first half of that chapter. And the question that I put before the teenagers as we looked at this passage was, where do we find hope when we don't think we deserve God's love? Where do we find hope when we really have messed up big time and we feel like God has every right to ignore us? every right to give us a hard life. That's something that many of them are familiar with. I think many of us here are familiar with. Points in time when we realize we really don't deserve a good life because of the decisions that we've made. In this passage in John 21, we get an encounter between Jesus and Peter. And I think it gets right at the heart of how God ministers to those of us who are struggling with that very question. What hope do I have when I have messed up big time? Let's pray, and then I'd like to read over the passage and then consider what it has to offer us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are here in this place, that already you're ministering to us in this room, and I invite your presence again, that your spirit would be living and active in each of our hearts, and that as we open your word and consider Peter's story and his encounter with your son, Jesus Christ, that it would encourage us and strengthen us and give us hope, because we do need hope when we have messed up. When we have failed you, we need to know that you're not going to give up on us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. I think one of the most important statements in this passage And one of the ones that's the easiest to overlook is right at the beginning of the chapter when Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's easy to overlook, but I think John includes it and makes sure to be clear that it's Peter who said he's going fishing because he wants us to understand where Peter is at at this point in time. The fact that Peter decides to go fishing here at a moment when he has seen Jesus raised from the dead really depends on understanding his whole story. Peter was a fisherman. That's the first reason why he decides to go fishing at this point in time. That's his roots. Probably his family were fisher people, and he had been raised working hard to provide a meal for his every day. I think fishermen in the Bible are the type of people who are easy to respect but easy to overlook at the same time. They obviously have a hard task ahead of them. They're not making a boatload of money. Instead, they have to catch a boatload of fish to even make enough money to survive for another couple days. And so it is that it's surprising to us when Jesus shows up on the scene and he invites this group of fishermen to follow him. When Jesus calls Peter and his disciples to follow him, we actually have a scene almost identical to the one that we just read. He arrives on the beach. They've had a frustrating night of fishing. And he tells them, cast your nets in the water again, other side of the boat. You're going to catch a lot of fish. And these experienced fishermen who know that's not the way that fishing works do it anyways, and catch a lot of fish. And they recognize there and then that this man is something special. Peter, above everyone else, seems to know that the man he's face-to-face with is more than just your typical human being. And his response is indicative of that. When he realizes how much he has just caught, he actually says to Jesus, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus says, follow me, Peter, calls all of the fishermen to leave behind their lifestyle and to become, that storied phrase, fishers of men, to help usher in God's kingdom by sharing the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the disciples get a lot of opportunities to see this in practice. Peter gets to be there firsthand when Jesus heals diseases that nobody thought could be healed. Leprosy, blindness, deafness, muteness. Jesus was able to get rid of things that even today our medical technology struggles to handle. They were there when he showed that he has utter command of all of the elements. These fishermen out in the boat, Jesus sleeping in the bow, they realize this storm that's coming is going to kill us all. And Jesus gets up, asks them why they're worrying, and then says, Hush, wind. And like that, the storm is silenced. The disciples even got to see Jesus reverse death. We talk about uncurable diseases. Multiple times, he helped people come back from the dead, including one where he's called and arrives late, to the death of a little girl. And as if she was just sleeping, he says, little girl, get up. And she wakes up just like that. After having spent some time with Jesus, Peter knew this guy is something special. And Peter was really the first to acknowledge it verbally. Midway through the Gospels, we have a scene recorded where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And the response is that people around seem to think that he's a great prophet, maybe that he's Elijah, come again. Some of them think that actually he's a con man. Others think that maybe he's really John the Baptist, just redisguised. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, okay, but who do you say I am? And Peter, Peter who has seen enough to recognize this is someone special, is the very first person in Scripture to say, you are the Messiah. You are the king who was promised Israel. You are the one who is going to save the world. You are the son of God. The very first person in Scripture recorded as saying that is Peter. Peter. But what's interesting about Peter is, despite the fact that he recognized early on and continued to affirm the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was greater than any human being who had walked, Peter also seemed to miss Jesus' heart on a really important topic. The topic of his sacrifice. You see, right after having said this, right after having confessed that Jesus is Lord, Jesus starts sharing about the fact that his plan is to go and to die for the sins of the world and and to be raised again in three days. And Peter rebukes him. Here he is face to face with a guy who just undid death, who just fed thousands of people with not enough for one person. And he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're not supposed to die. That's not how this works. We have a sharp rebuke by Jesus at that point in time. He, he claims Jesus is you, being used by Satan to tempt him. He says, get behind me, Satan. And this pattern of Peter missing Jesus' heart on the topic of sacrifice continues to play out through the rest of his story. We see it especially in the moments leading up to Jesus' death. We have that encounter in the garden. Jesus has been praying. The disciples have been pretending to pray, getting sanctified sleep, as Katie Bowman calls it. And he wakes them up over and over again. Come, don't you realize the hour is coming? And then on the scene, show up armed guards. And they say, we're going to take you. We're going to arrest you. And Peter, not liking this scene, does what he thinks is best, and he whiffs out a sword, cuts off one of the guard's ears. And again, Jesus rebukes him. No, Peter, this is not the way that things are going to go. And even heals the ear of the servant just to show Peter this is not my way. I think that moment in the garden when Peter did what he thought was brave, what he thought was noble, what he thought was right, and then was rebuked by Jesus, I think that really turned his world upside down. After that point in time, we see him trying hard to figure out what to do and failing pretty royally at it. He skulks along, following the guards as they're taking Jesus to imprisonment. We don't know how far exactly he was, but it's it's close enough that people realize that he's following in Jesus' wake And as he goes along, people keep on calling him out. Peter? Peter, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't aren't you one of the people we've seen walking around with him? Isn't that guy who's being dragged off and chains, isn't that your master? And Peter's response, full of fear, not sure what he's supposed to do at this point in time, is to say, no, no, I don't know that man. No, I'm I'm not one of his followers. And in the book of Luke, we have it recorded that the third time that he's confronted like this, Peter is so agitated, so worried about what it might do if people think that he's one of Jesus' followers, that he actually calls down curses on himself. He says something to the equivalent of, may God send me to hell if I am this man's follower. And then the rooster crows. Peter realizes that Jesus has identified in him this pattern. That Jesus knows he doesn't know his heart. He even told him this was going to happen. And Peter is crushed. You know what's amazing is in that moment, through that whole series of things, Peter should have known what the response was. Sometimes hindsight is twenty, 20. I'm, I'm always slow to assume that we would have made different decisions in the moment. We probably wouldn't have. Nonetheless, Jesus' teaching leading up to this point in time is pretty clear. He tells the disciples a number of times, I am going to die, and I am going to come back to life. Jesus didn't hide that fact from them. This wasn't some big surprise reveal at the end. <laughs> It was definitely surprising, but it was surprising because Jesus said that it was going to come true, and it did, not because Jesus hid it from anyone. In the moment Peter should have, even in his confused state, trusted, Jesus has this under control, but he didn't. He didn't understand why Jesus was doing this, and so he couldn't understand that Jesus was in control in that moment. And so he made the wrong decision. The neat part is, Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to. He came back from the dead, he undid the chains of sin and death. He showed that he's Lord of the universe, that Peter was right. He is something special, even more so than Peter understood. And Peter was one of the first people to be at the graveside to see that Jesus was raised from the dead. By the time that we get to this passage at the end of John, Peter is under no illusion. He knows that Jesus really did come back from the dead. So then why does he go fishing? Why does he decide to go back to the life that he had before Jesus had called him to ministry? I think the answer is, Because even though he knew Jesus had won, he figured he has no place in his plan for me anymore. Yeah, sure, Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, Jesus undid death. Yeah, Jesus has undone sin. But I know one thing, and that's that I let him down. There's no way he's going to want me back following him. So he takes the option that he thinks he has before him. What do I know? I know how to fish. And so he goes back to that boat and starts trying to make a day's wages again. But you know, the amazing part is, the thing that thrills me about this passage is that when Peter had given up on himself, Jesus refused to give up on him. And so he shows up And he does that same miracle that he did right at the beginning of their ministry. Just to make the point, look, Peter, I haven't given up on you. That same call I gave you back when I first met you is the call I have on your life today. And I really love the conversation that comes out of this moment. Peter's on the beach. I imagine that he's feeling a little bit ashamed, not sure where to go in this conversation with Jesus. And so Jesus goes out of his way to pursue him after breakfast is done. And he says three things to Peter that help us understand the depths of God's forgiveness. The first is he asks him, do you love me? He says this three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? We know that the reason he repeats it three times is precisely because Peter denied him three times. I think the question is revealing. Because Jesus has already paid the price for sin, he can look past the surface. He can look past the actions that we've done, the failures that we've had. And instead, the thing he asks of us is simple. Do you love me? Do you love me? All he wants is our hearts. It says Peter was grieved the third time he was asked. And when he says to Jesus, You know that I love you. Jesus doesn't contradict him. Yes, Peter. I know that you love me. Don't you realize that's the only thing I want in the world? that you trust me, that you love me, that you realize I haven't given up on you. The second thing he says is, feed my sheep. This is a call to ministry. He's looking around, and here is this group of disciples who are not sure what they're supposed to do with themselves now that they've all abandoned Jesus. I think probably many of them were suffering from the same confusion that Peter had, even if it was a bit of a milder form of it. What role does Jesus have in his plans for a bunch of people who let him down? And Jesus says, Peter, you're supposed to be the leader of this group. Feed my sheep. Make sure they understand my love for them. Make sure they understand that I haven't given up on them. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter always was a leader in the group. And Jesus says, I don't need you to be perfect. I need you to do the work that I've called you to. One of the amazing parts about God's forgiveness is that he doesn't just forgive us and say, that's that. He wants to use us for his purposes, of helping other people understand his forgiveness too. The whole New Testament is full of all sorts of promises about how much God loves to use broken vessels, each and every one of us, can play a part in his plan, even though we failed him. I think the one that excites me the most, though, is the third thing that Jesus says to him. It's a little bit harder to understand. He has this long diatribe about the fact that when you're older, people are going to stretch out your hands and take you where you do not want to go. John gives us a hint as to understanding what it is that's going on here. He says this is to show by what kind of death that Peter was to glorify God. Now, it's not recorded in the Scripture, but all of Christian history, there has been a tradition that says that the Apostle Peter was martyred, that he was hung on a cross. In fact, that when he was hung on a cross, he didn't want to diminish what Jesus had done He felt that he was unworthy of dying the same way that he had, and so he was hung upside down on a cross. We don't have any historic evidence for it, but I I choose to accept that that's true. And it makes sense with this understanding of people dragging Peter where he does not want to go and stretching out his hands. You know, the amazing thing here is that what Peter's being told is you'll get a chance to do that very thing that you didn't do when you denied me. Peter, I know that you were running when you should have been following. Peter, you could have died alongside me as a brave follower of Christ. You too could have been crucified, but you ran from it. But Peter, you're going to have that chance again and you're going to succeed this time. I'm going to restore to you what was lost in the first place. You see, I think often we think forgiveness gives us hope for tomorrow, but we still carry a lot of regret. What about all those wasted years? What about the fact that we missed all those other opportunities? Are they just lost to us? And the promise here that he's giving Peter is no. No, you will not have any regrets when you see me in heaven. I will restore to you everything that you lost in your own sin and failure. And so he closes, he closes these three statements with the simple assertion, Peter, follow me. How do we find hope when we've messed up? How do we we know that it's worth continuing when, when we don't feel like God would want us anymore? Well, I think Peter's story helps us with that. We can realize that even something as grievous as calling down curses on ourselves and denying Jesus, he's willing to forgive that. All he asks is that we receive it, that we love him, that we trust him that we return to that place we were before we failed, of following him. Following Jesus is not just a question once at the beginning of our life. It's something we ask ourselves daily. Am I willing to go back to him, to follow him, to receive the love and forgiveness that only this Messiah can offer us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, the one who never gives up on us, even when we want to give up on ourselves. Father, we know your love knows no bounds, and that because your Son paid the price on the cross, we need not sit under any condemnation. I pray that each of us would receive that today, that each of us would embrace it, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth, and that we'd all be able to follow you despite of ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray.